because I dunk the basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kid. Welcome to Dear Adam Silver. My name is Abigail Smithson and I am your host as always. And today on the podcast, I got to host Jeremy John Kaplan, who is a Brooklyn-based artist uh, who is involved with a project known as the Gold Nets Project, where he replaces old deteriorated basketball nets with new nets that have been spray-painted with gold paint. Um... Jeremy and I ended up trading a lot of stories because I've had my own ongoing net trade basketball project. Uh, So we got to sort of compare notes and talk about um, some NBA stuff as well as some art stuff. And it just was uh, a wonderful opportunity to, to speak with someone who is making work that is not so far off from mine of the same thought process, but of course we're approaching it from different backgrounds and all of that. And it was so great uh, to, to engage with Jeremy and just discuss all of the, the work he's done around this ongoing project. So thank you so much for listening. Please do not forget to rate and review uh, the podcast on whatever platform you choose to listen. Thanks so much. Cool. Well, yeah. I listened to Abby and yours. Um, and yeah, you, you bummed me out about the Sixers, but it's okay. <laughs> I don't disagree that they are millennial brats. So I'm not fully, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, and maybe Abdi and I are millennial brat, brats too, and it like takes a couple of millennial brats to like call out some millennial brats, you know, like take some to know some. I'm just kidding, Abdi. Um Yeah, you know, we kind of laid it. And that was just so close to after that uh, fight had happened. Um, yeah. I might not feel so – I mean, I don't feel as as angry today. Actually, right now I'm feeling really bad for Gordon Hayward's hand. Um, he was getting back to his old shape. I know. I just can't help but think that maybe the TNT broadcasters just jinxed the shit out of him the other <laughs> night because all they kept saying was, like, he's finally just getting back there. You know, and I was just like, yeah, oh, yeah. and then Jaylen, this happened. Jalen Rose was saying the same thing on the podcast. Right. It's, it's a shame because I really, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing that team competitive this season. I mean, obviously I have my favorites to win the conference, but you know, there's such a strong drop off after you get to the Bucks and Sixers that, but low key, I'm thinking that the Indiana might make a oh, bit of noise, which, you know, Sabonis connect. Yes, exactly. I was about to say, DeMontis <laughs> um, is my number two guy. Uh, so um, I'm definitely rooting for him as I was a major Lithuanian. Uh, national team fan for about three weeks um, over the summer. So, yeah, he was, you know, killing it. Um, Yeah, I think that they could be good. And I think that um, they have sort of uh, the – well, Indiana has a luxury of people not having super high expectations for them so that if they do start winning or going on runs or whatever, it's going to kind of – um, come out of nowhere, whereas, like, with the Celtics and the Bucks and the Sixers, like, people are, are expecting, or at least until this thing happened with Gordon Hayward, people are expecting somewhat yeah. more. So that's a good edge to have, where it's like you don't have a lot of pressure on you. 
Unfortunately, I think my Philadelphia teams that I've been a fan of only have ever performed well when there was not those expectations and mm. have never performed well when there was. So I hope that this team can break through that. But yeah. In my lifetime, I, I feel like just in general, I mean, it's so hard. That's why that Warriors one run was as impressive as it is. It's because it's so hard when you have all of those expectations and every team preparing for you on the way in. Totally. To like keep up that level of dominance is kind of crazy. Yeah, I know. That feels like many, many moons ago. Um, <laughs> but yes, I, I agree that there was um, this, yep, yeah, super special and just unheard of uh, as far as teams building teams base and response. I'm not sure totally how that, I mean, I, I know that that's been a, like the idea of getting like a guy to beat the other guy, like that has been around for a while, but this idea of like conceptually forming a team to respond to the concept of another team, um, I don't know, that just you, felt powerful. You, you touched on that in your conversation with Abdi too, um, about how you like teams that have like the slow build rather than like acquire the guy that makes them yeah. then competitive. And I do agree with that, you know. That's why the, some of these, you know, Utah, Denver teams that they look good because they're deep and they, you know, I even, I mean, the Pascal Siakam-led Raptors being tough is a cool proposition for that same reason. Totally. That, you know, who would have thought that, you know, he could really be most improved yet again because he's just added so much to the package. I love, you know, it's an exciting time of the year when you start to like really just, you know, get a bit of a bigger sample size. I mean, anything, right. anybody jumping to conclusions already is a little bit short-sighted, but you're starting to get enough of a sample size to like see the work that was put in, which is fun. Yeah. And it's just so hard to know, to anticipate what's going to happen with people mentally. Um, in preparation for things. So it's like we know the talent level of specific players. Of course, there's always the ability for them to um, exceed our expectations or disappoint. But to think like what is going, was going on in Pascal Siakam's head all summer after coming off of this championship and then losing Kawhi and then it's like what – he's just like hungrier or he's equally hungry for I mean, to win and it's exciting. To me, it seems like he's going to be a perennial all-star. If you have that kind of mentality, then you're going to succeed. That's why I'm a little frustrated with my own team because, you know, we had all these exciting little clips of Ben Simmons shooting all throughout the summer. Yeah. And he's still not taking a jump shot. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know those, like, Instagram uh, teasers. <laughs> Um, don't yeah. always lead, yeah, to the to actual game time decisions. I know it's so interesting. He's not. It just that is not happening for him um, yet. Well, that's why I will fully concede to your point of that you have to earn your swag because, it, like, having showed that you can do it in a Instagram clip with whoever right. many takes that is actually means less than nothing when it doesn't transfer over to a game strategy. 
Definitely. And I think that's a lesson we can all take from social media <laughs> as far as that's like the true. things we show versus what on a day-to-day basis we can actually um, do. And it's just it just so happens that with basketball players or athletes, like it's just so apparent when what they're giving us like clips of is not actually occurring on a game to game basis. Yeah. But also it apl- I certainly think it applies to artists, at least the, the ones that I've met, you know, the people that remain hungry and they remain humble and still feel like they, you know, if it's no longer that they have something to prove, but they still have room for improvement or they, you know, haven't achieved their own goals yet and they carry themselves with a level of gratitude, they're the ones that tend to succeed and stick around and have that kind of longevity. I think it's oftentimes guys, so girls, women, men, them. Yeah. Allow like a taste of success to inflate their head. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to come back from that where I think the slow build is, it's a more sustainable model. Definitely. Um, I, I completely agree. And, um, that is something that I've, because I think that we, we want really quick results from our, our practice as well. And to kind of be, you know, an overnight success and to have something, uh, go viral, whether it's on the internet or just like in general, have something that just, you know, uh, jumpstarts everything really quickly. And of course, uh, that only happens. I mean, that's just rare. So I think it's, um, yeah, it's normal to, uh, I, I mean, yeah, I think you're right that just having some gratuity and also celebrating the small things is really important along as far as, uh, even if you have really like lofty goals and, um, are striving for them, I think it's really important to, to take note of the, the things that happen along the way that still feel like progress. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So now that we have officially discussed both (laughs) both art and basketball, (laughs) please tell me and all of our listeners, which I found out recently might not include my mom anymore, and this will be the real test (laughs) because uh, if she doesn't say anything to me about this shout-out right here, I'll know that she has not been listening. Um, But... (laughs) Um, yes, please share how you have come to love basketball so much. And then sort of, if you could transition just about your art practice, both before, before you started the, um, Gold Nuts project and since. Sure. Um, so, you know, I guess the easiest way to boil it down is that my father introduced me to sports at a very young age and my mother introduced me to art and I kind of remained passionate on both fronts throughout my younger life, my development, and then early adulthood and then into whatever age I consider myself to be now, um, that it just, both of them, um, kind of stayed in equal footing in terms of, you know, I, I bring up often the example of, I worked at a gallery in LA Um, that was down the street from Dodger Stadium. And I would immediately leave my gallery job and get a ticket off of the scalpers and go straight to the game or leave and go straight to play in a pickup game. And 
you know, it starts to feel when you're a young person that those two worlds are often separate. Um, but for me, um, I was sort of always working on them both simultaneously. So I guess it was about maybe five or six years ago now um, that I really felt like I should approach it more formally and have a studio practice that is, you know, in direct relationship to those passions. Yeah. Um, I started Gold Nets Project with a good friend of mine, uh, Michael Kaler, back in 2005. Um, he's an amazing photographer and always has been. I was, you know, writing graffiti at the time and doing, you know, some uh, more formal work, but it was more here and there, like for gifts or so forth. Um, rather I was more organizing events and, uh, still playing ball at time. And we had a first Friday party where we would have live art come. And we were just kind of getting into a groove with a group of people that felt like there was like some real sort of creative capital that we could apply. Um, and lo and behold it was the the nets that were the thing that we felt like we could do it and we could do it and repeat that action it was like what can we do as a group that will have an impact because we have a willpower and some resources um so we did it and and, and we had a blast doing it um can you sorry i'm gonna interrupt just for a second if yeah, that's please. okay um if you could just explain the gold nuts project and um just like what you're actually doing sure um so we travel to neighborhood courts um throughout the world now i mean as many locations as we've gathered um but it started in philadelphia and we go to courts that are populated and we put up nets wherever they're needed. Um, it's, uh, largely a photo project and an art project, but more than everything, it is the function of supplying a net where there wasn't one before. And as a gift to the basketball community, as a way to give back and say, thank you for the kind of the way that it's fueled my own individuality. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah. you know, it started in 2005 and it was a like real collective effort at the time. Um, and then, you know, it just kind of stuck in my mind throughout the years. And as I created my studio practice, I was using the net a ton. Um, and it was something that we would do here and there, but I really kind of reignited it in December um, in Miami with another friend of mine where we went into some of the neighborhoods in Miami that I'd never been to before in little Haiti and so forth and uh, put them up there. And it kind of just, you know, it reminded me of how amazing of a feeling it is to go and do it. And then this summer in, in the beginning of May, um, I did it for the first time in Brooklyn and got such a warm response from the people on the court. Yeah. And I set myself a goal of how many I would want to do. And I ended up blowing right past it because it's just, um, uh, you know, it's a, an activity that I just really love to do. And, um, it's led me into all kinds of doors and situations that, um, have been really rewarding sort of both personally and artistically. So it's, I kind of just want to keep my head down and keep doing it. When you took this hiatus, um, from when 
you the project started and then you weren't doing it as much to when you've really gotten back into it and and gone sort of full throttle were you noticing hoops I mean were you still kind of trained to be like oh that that hoop needs a net you know I wish I had that or were you you still feeling like the impulse to 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 do that work yes um I've been photographing hoops wherever I have gone uh for many years um and wherever my travels would lead me, I would always play, find a find a time to, you know, get out and meet people, uh, even if it's in places where I don't speak the language. I would always just try to find the time to go and get a run in. And I always was kind of mentally taking notes. Um, and then when I really started the project, I realized that I have this vault of research of a ton of hoops around the world mm-hmm. that... Um, that need nets or, or might not need nets. Yeah. I think that it, I like this idea of the photographing it sort of in between the, the times of putting the nets up kind of made you, well, I guess I'm thinking that sometimes I love photographs and, um, I'm a photographer, so this is not to sort of beat up on photography, but there's something about actually changing out the net, um, that makes that's more intimate, I think, than just yeah. photographing the hoop. Absolutely. And so I also really love photographing hoops and backboards and the environment behind them, around them. It's it's all really interesting to me. But there there still feels like um, this idea of like marking the moment. the ph- The photograph doesn't go far enough for me. Well, it's you know, it's kind of it's being a observer versus sort of being a participant um mm-hmm. i guess uh, you know i've i've always had an interest in photography but i was always surrounded by so many really talented photographers so I'm like just sort of by happenstance three of my closest friends are all um really talented photographers so kind of always wanted to have a different lane um and then at some point when i i guess when i really started my studio practice I stopped being interested in taking photos of pretty much anything else other than basketball courts. Yeah. Um, and then I guess something kind of somewhat similar happened with, I still document, you know, when, when I going out to do the project, I pass on courts that have nets if they don't, if they're not torn or, you know, mm-hmm. sort of, I, I have like a, you know, if it's more than kind of 75% there still, I'll leave it alone because it's very much about where they aren't or where they're needed. Um, so I still take those photos, but I found myself just less interested in them. You know, I'm less, I, I have a bunch from this summer and I kind of haven't even really looked back on them. And there's some, you know, that are absolutely beautiful. And prior to kind of reigniting the project, I probably would have been flipped out over having some of the, the photos and wanted to print them and do something with them. But, um, you know, now once you kind of get a sense of being coming an active participant in it, that is where I want to spend my energy. And as much as I'll continue to still document the ones that have nets that I'm passing on, um, they just, you know, they don't inspire me the same way. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think sometimes the, uh, there can be certain surroundings around a hoop that make that hoop interesting. But in general, it's like the worn out ones have the most sort of story to tell. I feel that yeah. I have to respond to in some way. And well, I think there's something that happens too that 
you know, it's, it's prevalent in street photography and Instagram photographers that is a little twisted of like, you know, kind of like poverty porn. Yeah. The and, porn. Yeah. And that, um, you know, when I've documented places where I've, I've seen really worn down hoops, there's something, you know, it's kind of poetic about how well worn in they are. Uh, but that's where you start to, you know, kind of want to do something beyond just like snapping a picture and, mm-hmm. and, and wanting to print it or wanting to, you know, get likes from it or something. You know, it's like, I think there's, you know, once you kind of have that level of awareness of, you know, what are you, are you doing something where you're just coming in and sniping and leaving? Or if, if it means something to you, then maybe you can take it a step further. Yeah. Did you just use the word sniping for snapping? <laughs> oh my gosh. Because I always talk about like take and capture and shoot and how violent the vocabulary around photography is, but I've not heard that before. And that's such a good connection between the words snap and snipe (laughs) Um, because it can feel a little bit violent sometimes when you're um, or predatory when you're photographing in spaces that you don't actually do anything and and I really felt the need to do something in those spaces that I wanted to take the thing that I wanted to like be in so I had no business being on a basketball court because I don't play basketball so what else can I do on the basketball court on the basketball court how Uh, else can I sort of interact with a space that I I enjoy being around and I like what happens on it how else can I be a part of this space totally Um, and I think photographers a lot of photographers have that experience when you're photographing people right like when you're when you're photographing mm -hmm. people that you haven't like immersed yourself in that community, whatever it might be, then you can feel that from the image. You know, some of all of my favorite photographers will be the first ones to tell you that like, you don't just walk by someone and and photograph them. I mean, yeah, there might be, you might get a good moment here or there, but if you want to really, you know, photograph and make portraits of people, then you have to meet the, you have to become you know, at least uh, familiar to then have them kind of open up to you in a way that you're then viewed as part or, or at least friendly to that group of people. And when you see photos where the energy isn't correct, then it's you can tell when you yeah. see it. So I think the same thing, you know, it's harder to then make that divide when it's, you know, kind of still life, like an empty basketball court might be. But I think that's kind of the the same divide that I was kind of struggling with. Yeah. I think it's really, it's so important to verbalize all of this just because um, with photography being so much more prevalent now because we all have, well, a lot of us have access to cameras on our phones, like just the, the role that is played by taking a quick picture and sharing it with a bunch of people who have never been to that space and then representing that space so quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's then what this, this place is like. It's a, it's a worn out backboard. It's a worn out basketball hoop. It's a beat up court. Like it just, those things have like so many implications that are charged with so much, um, meaning within the context of, of the history of the United States. Um, I just think it's, it's, 
Yeah, I just think talking about it is pretty much all we can do because the pictures are still interesting and it's still good to make them. It's just about being, it's just about being thoughtful. Um, so yeah, and I mean, I also think this is a good time to point out because I've not really talked about these like net trades that I've done before on the podcast. That um, when I just want to say to everyone listening that when I found your work, I was both excited and like I think as artists tend to be sometimes when they find someone's work who's like a different iteration of their own or along the same lines there can be this sense of like oh my god what I did what I wasn't the first one to do it what do I do where should I hide how can I delete all these things that I made and then immediately you know after that you know those 10 seconds I was like I need to talk to this guy (laughs) um and that felt like a really positive um, place to arrive at in a way to share our experiences and also like note the differences because we haven't we haven't done the same thing but we have interacted with similar spaces. Totally, and I think you know, I think it happens to most artists that you'll come up against something that you weren't aware of previously and now someone's pointing it out to you. I mean, I've done it to people and was kind of unconscious about it. Like, Oh, this reminds me of this. Totally. And then you watch their reaction, not be the kind of positive that, you know, this association is a good thing because I think, you know, people are on certain wavelengths together unbeknownst to one another. But I think that there's, a, you know, people arrive to a way of thinking uh, on their own and there's something to that, right? I mean, there's there's some other artists out there. Uh, I know we touched on it when we first chat. Uh, Terrell Winston, yeah. he, he's put up a, a ton of nets. And, you know, to me, it's like it's the more the merrier. I mean, the work right. needs to be done. <laughs> the people on those courts, they don't care about our art by and large. You know, if, if you're a kid who's at the court and you get a new net, you think that person, you know, is, is worried about like our feeling like we are one of one or we're yeah, our kids, originality, you know? <laughs> the preciousness of our ideas. Yeah. That's on us to like yeah. sort that out in your studio. But when you're out there, like it's always worthwhile to be doing it. You know, it's genuinely a good act to do. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I'm not disillusioned to thinking that we're out there doing anything that's you know saving lives or doing anything dramatic but i think it is a real like entry point into a way of thinking uh that is a kind of you know like a each one teach one capacity that if you know you felt compelled to swap out these nets and and give new nets to these you know beautiful unique backboards that you were able to come across then that's the right way of thinking, right? And and you shouldn't be discouraged by someone else having a similar line of thinking. And, and you know, I think artists, we oftentimes, like, we desire so much. I kind of had a similar reaction to when I saw that you were making cyanotypes. I was like, wait. Yes, not only, cyanotypes Not only were you taking nets, but you were making cyanotypes. Like, but then it's sort of like we must just have some sort of kindred spirit in, totally. in our practices and exactly, you know, it's like, let's chop it up. Let's figure it out. I mean, I, I think that, you know, if, if you're 
a, a, a studio painter, if you're a, an illustrator and, you, and someone has like a mark making technique that's like you think is yours and then here it is in a different iteration, that can be, I'm sure, tremendously frustrating. Um, but that's not really the kind of work that you or I are doing. No. So it's, yeah. you know, it's kind of have to like rest your loin on if, if you really intended to do it as a sort of level of like civic service or, or engagement, then that's what you were doing. And, yeah. you know, kind of like then, then, then you're doing the right thing. And it's like the more, you're right, it's just the more people that are engaged in that way, it's like, that's, that's a good thing. And I think that my younger self, before I actually started making work about basketball, when I was a little bit more grasping at things to that felt slightly less organic to, to make work about, I would have, if I had found out that someone was, you know, that three or four people that could easily be pulled up on Instagram were making similar work to me, I think I would have like really beat myself up and, and try to think of something else or whatever. So I had kept myself thinking like I have to search for this thing. And at this point it just feels like collaboration is such a more powerful path. And I mean, even this podcast could be considered that, but just like that. Yeah. Recognizing, wow, this person has, um, was thinking along the same lines. Why wouldn't we try and like make something together <laughs> rather than totally. being like, Oh, shut it down. Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, my, different. my sister loves the, your ego is not your amigo quote. Yes. And I do think that some of those lines of thinking is that's just what it is. It's just, your, you know, kind of frustrated because you you wanted to be this you know solely original thing but i think that we can all kind of surrender that that doesn't really exist and you know the the kind of inverse effects happens when i'm on a court and i put up a net and the guy that's there is the last person to have put a net up at that location you know you think he's offended by it <laughs> you right, know he's no. like oh, like you know we then have everything to discuss because it's like, okay, great. Like, where did you get that net? What, what, you know, how long did it last? Did you attach it with zip ties on this broken weld here or what, totally. you know, it's, and, and I, that's kind of, yeah, that's like, we're all on the same team when it comes to kind of trying to, you know, put that energy in and continue it, that ball rolling in that direction. Yeah. And I think that basketball is inherently kind of this cyclical game as far as, I mean, so much of it is about this like hoop shape and about the ball and about like this passing through and then coming back out and all this stuff. And like, therefore the objects that are a part of that game are also like the nets. If there, if there is an active basketball life on that court, the nets only have a certain amount of time before they're no longer useful in a traditional way. And so it's like this idea that like, you have to keep changing them out. Um, and, uh, it also has this kind of like life cycle. Um, yeah, yeah the nets are just amazing. They're such beautiful. I still am kind of all into them as objects. I can't, can't hide it. They're pretty I, powerful. It, they're so easy to sort of obsess on once I, you know, now I need to be careful when I'm driving. <laughs> like mm-hmm. this, 
try to look off in the far distance. Do they have a net? Is it there? Is that is one that I put up still there? Does it need to be replaced? Right. And the little um, wisps that get left behind when it's just sort of, I mean, sometimes I'm like squinting and I'm like, is there a little bit, of, a tiny two inch piece of a net? Like I want that two inch uh-huh. piece. Um, or, or there might've been a court that ha- didn't have a net for years and years, but the one that I put up is like one of the attachments is down and I'm sure that no one playing cares, but it bothers me when I see it. Totally. <laughs> you know, like that, that level of, of, you know, connection to it becomes really cool. Yeah. Um, so I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about our two projects and how yeah. with, with yours, um, it had more of a concept of wanting to give back to basketball. And for mine, it was more about wanting to uh, initiate this trade because I felt that I was living in Baton Rouge where I didn't spend much time outside of my graduate community at LSU and then going to the grocery store and then going home and feeling like I'm going to live in this place for three years and I'm going to leave and I'm not going to have seen most of it. Um, and how can I engage with people that are not a part of my built-in community and mm-hmm. wanting to establish some way that felt healthy to me to approach people um, in order to to make work. So I think this is where this whole idea of predatory photography or feeling hesitant mm-hmm. about um, how I represent a place that I'm not necessarily from especially as a I mean I was a long-term visitor but I was just a visitor there I knew that I wasn't going to live there forever so this idea of knowing that I'm not of this place and that I'm interacting a lot with with people who are of this place how do I engage them in a way that that ends up sort of um putting us both on like a level playing field as far as the trade aspect went yeah um so yeah I mean I Yes. I think that it's, I like that line of thinking a lot because I think, you know, we as a society are obviously more uh, lost in our technology and so forth that like just the simple idea of being a neighbor um, is sometimes lost in the shuffle. And I think your inclination of, you know, how do I engage in a way that is going to also be meaningful for them mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, is important, right? Like, I think that idea of, oh, you know, I moved to this area. I don't want to be a gentrifier. Allow me to, you know, patron these businesses or so forth. Some of it is the right thinking, but I think also a lot of times that's people that want to sort of satiate their own needs or their own kind of whatever white guilt or it might be that I think your line of thinking of okay you know I don't I don't just want to come by and do what makes me feel good but I also want to leave something that someone else give given the opportunity can feel good from this exchange too um is a responsible way of approaching it I guess my for when we started it so long ago it, I wasn't thinking about creating from it, you know, the mm. act of doing it was the creation. Yeah. Now having a studio practice and I have been really making sure that I 
keep all the rip nets and I'd like thoroughly document where they came from. And I make work sort of specifically from those objects. We were always taking them with us. It was never something that I wanted to discard, but I wasn't thinking about having there be an object that could come from it. At mm-hmm. most, the documentation was what was coming from it. Um, but now that that's the, you know, there is a goal to do that with what I'm doing. I think, you know, we're, we, we kind of, I landed on a very similar thought process that you had initially. Um, I just hadn't, you know, at the, at the time I didn't have a physical studio space, you know, anything that we, I was, you know, writing graffiti, what I was making was going to be destroyed or turned over at some point in the near future. So there was never this, like, let me preserve this archive, this object. Right. Um, But now that's an idea that I'm really interested in. So I kind of, you know, have a fusion of which I, I do both now, right? Like I, I'll still hang all the nets at the park if it doesn't have a single shred of an old net. But if there is a single shred of an old net, then I'm going to bag it and take it with me. And I'm going to find a way to use that object in the future. Right. Because that net um, is a document of that place. Um, I think in sometimes a more powerful way than a photograph can be because the net doesn't have any sort of biases or Mm -hmm. certain ways of presenting itself in either an interesting or uninteresting way. It just exists and collects dirt and rainwater and snow. And I remember in Louisiana, I got this um, net that was just growing. There was just plants growing out of it. I mean, it was like lichen or something like that. And I was like, "This this net is alive, you know? And of course, as soon as I took it from its hoop... Um, started to to die and shift and change, and all the green lichen is now gray. Um, hmm. So it's just I, I think that the nets have in their sort of natural existence and natural state, the nets the nets um, have this simple sort of energy and power. And totally, yeah. I think they're they're like completely spiritually charged objects. It's like a you know kind of like a if these walls could talk idea of you know, that net holds the hopes, the dreams, the goals, the successes and the failures of yes. uh, people that have come uh, and kind of visited that hoop as a sanctuary. I mean, I, you know, so at times you can kind of really like it radiates from the object itself for sure. Definitely. I had an experience in Baton Rouge um, around the time that Alton Sterling was shot. Did you hear about, have you heard his name before or about? Of course. Yes. Okay. So um, that was in North Baton Rouge and Baton Rouge is like a very divided city. Um, And uh, just um, there's Florida Boulevard and sort of south of Florida Boulevard is where the university is. And that like in recent years has been this like white neighborhood and like north of Florida Boulevard is more historically has been um, African-American. And uh, when Alton Sterling was shot, it just it wasn't that far from where I lived. But it you know, when we we drove to this vigil and it was like I had never been anywhere near this area, even though I'd already lived there for um, two years, I'd never been near the area. And it was like, I need to figure this out um, and see all of this like close, you know, I, we had just driven there and I was like, I'm going to walk from my house on a separate day. I decided I was going to walk from my house to the, to the corner market where he had been shot. So I could look more closely at how things change from one side of Mm -hmm. this, um, 
a Florida Boulevard to the other. And when I got within a block of, um, you know, and it's just like, it's just, once you get to a certain point, there's no sidewalks. Like the, the city is just t- taken care of sometimes in a different way. Um, yeah. and yeah, I mean, just like right across the street, nearly from where he was killed, like there's just these basketball hoops. And I was just thinking like what someone could have heard or, you know, it's just like this idea that those, those nets have, have those, that experience, um, in them, like from what surrounded them or what someone could have heard on that court during what happened there. It was like, I wanted to spend time at that school and time in that space. Um, so yeah, I think that, uh, sometimes. So did you? I did. Yeah. I mean, I, I went, so those were chain, chain nets, which there's a lot of chain nets in Louisiana. And of course, like the chain nets hold this, um, sort of rich symbolism as well. And also they're just like really fucking hard to switch out. (laughs) Um, so I, um, some things about that seems appropriate though, with all the like, uh, string and horn sections in that area, that the sound of the chain that would be kind of prevalent there. There's something kind of beautifully poetic about that too. Right. And, you know, I would always say, like, if it's a chain net, I have to put a chain net up. And if it's a nylon net, I have to put a nylon net up. So I have to, I, like, I'm not going to sort of change the aesthetic of a place by, by putting up a, a nylon net, even though they're so much easier. <laughs> um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I just uh, – so I spent a lot of time there because the nets took me a really long time to get down. And on the court of that – of that, that particular basketball court had this map of the United States on it and just like parts of it were just w- so worn out. Like the, they were just like missing states and just areas that were just completely sort of stripped down from this, from this painting. And, you know, this was right before the 2016 election. And it was just like, God, this, this court is like so um, filled with so much of the trauma that, that, that we're dealing with as a country. Um, mm, and it felt mm. really powerful and, 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 and important to be there and mark that place. And also to look past, as we had discussed, look past the idea of it just being ba- about basketball, but all these other things that are taking place around the court and, and that the court is a part of this bigger community. Yeah. I mean, a million percent. I definitely see the basketball court as a place of sort of congregation and fellowship as much as it is a place for sort of competing on the court. I think that I've been really pleasantly surprised by the way that kind of all walks of life have kind of been intersecting my path, um, not just the athletes themselves that, um, you know, I can recall a time in, in Philadelphia where, you know, a woman from across the street on her porch, you know, was shouting that uh, she appreciated what I was doing. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she does go out there and, you know, work on her free throw form. But I'd imagine that she, you know, just kind of felt that you know felt the energy that i was kind of bringing Mm -hmm. there and and um and then i just you know i get such a charge from when i get to feel that in return you know so it's it's like this cyclical thing that um but i you know i i it makes me think of uh 
something that I had, I had mentioned to you earlier when we spoke about um, a project that came up um, along the way uh, with a court that is really close to where I live um, that um, essentially I go to um, trying to think of how to tell the story sort of appropriately. Yeah, um, take your time. Cause it is, it's, it's a heavy one that, um, you know, obviously the, the Alton Sterling situation was horrific and, uh, you know, at that moment, um, especially it was just a real sort of breaking point. Um, but I do think that, you know, like those courts or those communities or those nets, like that kind of like resilience of living through these horrific situations um, isn't new, right? It, mm-hmm. it might be new to a national stage that people are, you know, more interested in having like public discourse about it. But I think that those that are sort of truly affected by that kind of situation, um, they're, you know, have having had gone through situations, uh, maybe not that specific one, but, you know, kind of traumatic situations become, all too familiar and it's not just in those communities it is you know it is wherever you are but um i say it to say that um i was just finished up playing in a um like a rec not even a league it was just a pickup game at um, saint cecilia's church here in williamsburg um and sort of as a side that's in a really amazing like linoleum tile court that the the three point line is like cut out little linoleum tiles, some of which are peeling up, but it's this kind of page to an earlier era. And, you know, we have the lovely treat of alternate side street parking and I still have a vehicle in New York city. So I go to move my car and it's late at night because the game probably got done at 10 or 10 30. And then I came back to my place and I, I ate with my wife and then I go to move my car and at this point it's maybe midnight and it was tough to find parking. So I ended up parking um, maybe four or five blocks away and kind of right next to this basketball court that I had only ever been, I'd never played there. I'd only ever walked through there to take a photo once. Um, and then I noticed that there's this, so I, so I park my car and I poke my head in and I'm like, let me see if they need nets. And it's four hoops, you know, two full courts. And there was this memorial, uh, in candles on the, on the ground, uh, that was in the shape of a T and two basketballs on either end of the top of the T. And this is, you know, midnight in a housing development, you know, there was people out, but no one was like specifically on the court when I got there Yeah, and there were still candles lit. So I was really moved by it. And I start to walk away thinking, Oh, I'll come back. You know, when I have my full routine, because you know, the kind of performative aspect of it is important, but something was, you know, in my ear, just, now is the time you know Mm -hmm. you can spare the overalls this time you don't really need to worry about the photos you might be able to take in better light or what have you whoever 
whoever put those candles out and those whoever basketballs those are, uh, you know, they would appreciate new nets in the morning and not by this weekend or, you know, life moves around. I, I just started to think if I don't do it now, it might be another week or two weeks or something before I can get the time to go and do it. So I should just go do it now. And I had, I happened to have four nets in my ladder, just in my car. So I go out and start stringing up the nets and I had no idea, you know, I didn't know if it was violence or what had taken place. Yeah. Uh, if it was a young person, an old person, I had no idea. All I knew was that it was somehow connected to this court and there was something about the placement of it because it wasn't like on the center court. It wasn't on the baseline. It wasn't in the foul line. It was like on sort of a, an interesting angle that I just could feel that something had happened um, that was really heavy and affected the people there. So I, I go and I'm, and you know, it's this, the kind of New York city double rim that has the little sort of eyelet to push the net through and you tie it on the other side and, Mm-hmm. So it takes some time. Those double I, rims are not my friends. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you get, you know, I kind of got a rhythm with it now and I end up liking them because they, if you tie it correctly, they end up sticking around, I think longer mm. than some of the other styles, but they're definitely a pain on the front end. But you know, that I just mean that I, you know, it's probably there for, I don't know, 40 minutes, 45 minutes or something. And I get to the last one and some people kind of start coming up to me. Um, Sort of a small world occurrence of one of the guys who had seen me hang the first one at um, in Brooklyn, who had given me this kind of warm response. He was what he had said. He came up to me and shook my hand after I hung the one and said, Hey, I'm going to win this game for you. He was driving by and saw me out there on the ladder parked his car and came to talk to me while I was talking to some other young people there. And they told me what had taken place. And it was a guy, um, his name was Torian Spears. He passed away while playing on that court, not but two days prior to this. And um, he was, you know, a really valued member of that community that was a mentor and a, and a teammate and a, brother and a son and all of these things to so many people um and you know this young guy brian says you know torian showed me how to shoot my jump shot um another one of his friends came and like did a kind of a push-up next to the memorial and like kissed the ground next to it and one of the younger other guys said you know we appreciate the new nets but it, it might be a little while until we're out here playing again and as much as I like understood why he would be telling me that there was something, you know, something kind of this just gut wrenching about that response that I said, Hey, you know, let's maybe think about what else we can do to honor him here. And I start to look around and there were the game lines were just in horrible shape. They were barely there. There's, you know, more of them that were still existing on the other court than this one. And, you know, so I mentioned to one of the guys that like, I think we could, we could do something where we, we repaint the game lines and do some kind of tribute for Torian. Um, and it ended up leading me down a path that I'm still very much on. I was there on Saturday because we're uh, filming a documentary about Torian and that court and 
the process of trying to get that court renamed in his honor and ultimately remodeled in the future, renovated in the future. Um, and it was this moment that, you know, was pretty pivotal for me and my project because I took that feeling that I was describing with you of like wanting to be a neighbor um, and got you know, sort of handed by this community a real opportunity to do so. And they were so warm in how they they responded to me. Um, I had a ton of help the day that we painted with some friends of my own and also some of the people that live there. Um, and it just kind of turned into this, like, now ongoing collaboration where I, you know, really, for the first time I've been in Williamsburg for five years i've been in new york for almost 10 um feel like i really live here and feel like this is my neighborhood now um and not just somewhere where i walk and i go to restaurants and i you know i really genuinely live here and i'm so thankful to the people in the community for for kind of giving me that opportunity and i've had a bunch of kind of jokes with some of them that you know one guy in particular um whose nickname is Knowledge, has been so cool to, like, every time I come around and he's grilling or he has food in the apartment, he's like, let me feed you, let me... And I, you know, I joke with it that if I, you know, if I could just paint lines somewhere and get fed as many times as he feed me, then I wouldn't have to have a job. Yeah, <laughs> right. And it's it was just this occurrence. and I And I say all that to say that, like, you know, this community has dealt with a lot. Um, and, and Torian's life really brought people together. They ended up having a tournament this summer. And, um, you know, one of the guys, when they were organizing the tournament, he reached out to me to say, hey, we need some help with, with finishing the shirt. Some of the teams can't play. And I'm thinking, hey, you know, I'm just so excited that they're, from the moment where they told me that it'll be a while till we're back out here till then they're going to play a tournament in his honor. I just, it, it felt really rewarding, you know, and when, how often do you get to feel that kind of love from something that, you know, it took us the better part of a day, but it's like, you know, a, a bunch of hours invested into something and all of a sudden you're seeing its results yeah. was like this, this thing that I felt really proud of and, I thought for sure that they were going to play a weekend long tournament. Well, they ended up playing like a 12 league week long league and had a three game finals. And every week had the scorekeepers and the refs and it was really beautiful. And I kind of think that, um, the way that, you know, and, and I, I never met Torian, you know, mm -hmm. all of what I have to go on of his life is based on, the conversations that I've had with his family, his, his baby mother, his father, his brothers, his friends, his cousins, his, you know, the, the woman, Deborah Benders, who he worked with at the community center, who's amazing. All of these people are the ones that kind of told me about his legacy. And I do think that it is a bit of like this kind of throwback of at one point, and you hear a lot of the kind of elders in the community talk about how at one point, you know, in the seventies, when nobody was locking their doors and everybody was considered family, you know, you could yell at this kid if he was doing bad and that person's mom wouldn't get upset because they know everybody was kind of looking out for one another. 
that that's kind of the, the principles that, that Torian lived with. And I think that that's kind of what maybe I had even underestimated that I think people, you know, I think of New Orleans and Baton Rouge and, and Louisiana as such a resilient place because of the way that people reacted to the storms mm-hmm. and the spill and everything, you know, it's, it's just that kind of perseverance that is really powerful. Um, but you, you, I guess it took me a little while to realize that that happens very much like actively, collectively, that it happens one encouraging conversation at a time, one challenging, one someone saying, don't, don't act like that, don't live like that, you know, that kind of idea that we are responsible and accountable to each other is a powerful idea and can, you know, really help pull people through some of the roughest and toughest of times. Uh, And, you know, that's where I really, I feel really compelled to keep working uh, on trying to get these courts named for Torian because I've felt that I've gotten so much Mm -hmm. in exchange from it. Right. Like the, the fact that I've invested, you know, a small amount of time in the grand scheme of things and in exchange you know, have a whole new group of friends and people that would look out for me in a pinch um, that is like priceless, that that is what community, that's how communities operate, right? You have to, you show that your heart and your head is in the right place to people and they will embrace you for it. And it will have dividends in your life that like you can't really quantify. And that's how people stick together. Um, so I don't know. I think, you know, I'm still kind of navigating where it's going to take us all. I'm really optimistic. The um, the director who uh, owns owns the production company, his name's Andrew Nissenson. Um, him and his his crew have done such an amazing job. We're still looking at all the the cuts and stuff now, and um, I think it's going to be a beautiful film. And I, I mean, I know it's going to be a beautiful film. I really. I'm optimistic that it's going to actually have an impact on improving that court and and having it renamed for for someone who's actually spent time, you know, looking out for people while being there. And I think that, you know, having that kind of understanding and ownership over a public space can be really powerful for the community. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's heavy. Still figuring it out. (laughs) And I think it's also just, I'm going to move slowly here because I'm still collecting my thoughts. Um, I think that maybe there's always, as, it's just so, like you were there because of this, like you showed up at this place because of you, because you loved basketball because you love basketball Mm -hmm. um and what also opened up um I just think it's I just wonder about like is there always a role that I think when your intentions are good and when your intentions are honest so I think that there's always a role you might be able to play in helping if that makes sense. I agree. So I also think it's important to put statement. your cards. I also think it's important to put your cards on the table. 
right? Like I, I'm not like a charity worker in this equation, right? Like I, at the time I had never painted lines of a basketball court before. Just the prospect of doing that was very exciting for me. And this was this really kind of beautiful and powerful excuse to do that. So I was very much forthright with the people that I'm like, I get to do this too. So this is working out for me. And yes, this is something that I'm doing in reaction to these experiences, but I don't want people to get the wrong impression that this is an experience that I want to, you know, I'm not doing favors, you know, I'm doing things that I want to be doing too. And I think that there's, people have to be honest about what those, what your intent is fully, right? Like I was eager to, to, to paint the court because I wanted to, this just motivated to push me over the, to the, the top to say, we're, nothing's going to stop us from doing this. We're going to do it. You know, that is different than the, like, I just want to do it. You know, mm-hmm. this was, it really it, it pushed me. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, with the filmmaker, you know, this is his production company. He's a, an amazing director. He's also a writer and he, um, is repped his agencies that, that rep him. So he's, you know, having his own production company, he can't, his hands are tied about what he can do and can't do based on his representation. So a non-commercial project, such as a documentary like this is something that he can direct under the umbrella of his agency mm-hmm. or excuse me, the under umbrella of his production company. So talking to the people in the community and telling them, you know, he's here putting up his, his time and energy and in times his, his budget, because it's a, it's a sizable crew at times doing it for, because he would like to be in the business of telling stories. So he's going to tell this story and he's going to do it with all of the, the, you know, professionality that he brings to the table, but it's, it's working for him, you know, because he wants, he wants to, to have that come out of this umbrella. So we have to be honest with each other. We can't, you know, there shouldn't be some guise of I'm here to help you out, but I'm not getting anything out of this. Mm -hmm. Right. That's when it starts to become sticky or there can be resentment or people can look crooked. It's like, if you actually play those cards and say, look, he's here because he wants to make, tell a beautiful story. You guys have a beautiful story that's ready to be told. We can tell it together. We can all work together and hopefully something really powerful can come from it. Um, but I think at times things can get messy when people act as if they like don't have a, a you know, something on the table that's going to work out for them. Um, you know, that's why I guess, I guess I try, I just try to be really conscientious of it. I've had enough experiences in my life that, um, I, you have to be critical, right? Like the mm-hmm. we, we mentioned, we mentioned the the sort of the concept of of white savior, um, and how dangerous that can be, and how you know without a certain level of self awareness, you can find yourself in these traps that have, you know, haven't worked for everybody's benefit in the past, and if you are not aware of those things going into it 
you can even a well-intentioned person who's not being critical and not putting themselves through that rigor can end up in a situation that's not good. And I think that it's one of those things that I've found is that people should be, you know, communicative about what their interests are. Um, so people don't feel exploited and people don't feel like, you know, they're not sure of why some, what someone's intentions are. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, we, we touched on it when we chatted that I think that, um, that responsibility is a huge one and I'm sure that I'm, I, I'm not going to have it right all the time. You know, I think that it's, it's a, it's a tricky road to, to walk down, but it's one that, you know, I think that I'm built for. Um, and I hope, and I, and I hope that I've, you know, put myself through it enough to, to, but I'm sure I'm going to run into some things in the future that are going to, you know, leave me scratching my head and wondering where I, where I was wrong. And, um, but I think we have to, right. Like we, you know, we, t- we touched about how, you know, as artists that want to be cer- certainly allies, um, for communities that are, you know, maybe less funded or, you know, under resourced, um, that, you know, I, I do come from a similar situation, but I don't come from that one. And I know that I'm an outsider as much as I have now been invited in, I'm still an outsider. I didn't, I, you know, I, prior to going in there with a camera, I had never been in those housing projects before. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been on the court, but I hadn't been invited in and I have to be self-aware of what that looks and feels like, um, to everybody else, as much as I'm self-aware about what it looks and feels like to me. And there's a responsibility that comes with that. Um, and you can't be afraid of failing, but you can't just sort of go running either. You have to be pretty sure-footed. Yeah. I think you're, this idea of operating within the system of white supremacy that, that, that we do, um, it's really important to observe when your privilege is in action. Um, and when this, I think especially with um, making artwork, telling stories, when it's really important to be aware uh, of how that relationship is playing out with, with different communities. Um, I think I, I, uh, I mean, yeah, Baton Rouge, of course, is like a very racially charged place. So I had um, experiences there um, that, that where I, I very much felt like, uh, yeah, I guess what you were saying about like, you're visiting, not, not, you're not living the experience, you're visiting the, an experience. And that yeah. that is built into the privilege sometimes of being uh, white and, and wanting to move through different spaces that you're not that's not your sort of like native space. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting because but I think so I when I was in Lithuania, I realized that in the United States, especially dealing with basketball and, and um uh, football, of course, too, like those are very racially charged sports. And I mean, baseball yeah. and hockey are also racially charged but it's just a different it's a different iteration because of course hockey is so is predominantly white um and all these things there's different conversations that are happening but with the majority of owners in the nfl and 
uh, MBA being white. Um, and then, uh, so, I mean, speaking about um, the men's, uh, that the NBA versus the WNBA, uh, and then the coaches majority white, like just that, and then the players majority African-American, that's just a tricky dynamic. And, and in Lithuania, this was not something that translated to Lithuania at all. Like my perception of sports in the United States was not something I could apply to how basketball functioned in Lithuania because there's much less, there's much less diversity. And um, it's sort of understood that, uh, I mean, it's just like, a, it's it's a uh, very white country um and most of the i guess i'm have... curious are there like class associations associated like if you know with the game class associations um no i mean i think that the game is like politically charged because uh of the soviet occupation um sure. so that basketball was the way that people could show anger and frustration and root against uh, Moscow during the Soviet mm-hmm. occupation with their like local teams in Lithuania that that were all the Lithuanian uh, players yeah. would be and on that team. Exceptionally good. Yes, teams, and then when they country. would like go abroad, those players would play on the Soviet team, and it was like this idea they didn't want to be seen as Soviet, but they were playing on the Soviet team because outside of the Soviet Union, that everyone played on the Soviet mm. team. Um, but the same feeling came up when I was, like, researching this this woman, Senda Berenson. There was that I was like, what role can uh, we, me and my collaborator, play in without sort of assuming that we understand how, the, like, this is a, a woman that was born in what is now Lithuania. The people in the village that she's from are aware of her story. What else can we provide? How else can we be a part of this situation without sort of stepping on anyone's toes or telling anyone else what they should know or not mm. know or should do or not do. And of course we're interested in her story being preserved and all of these things. It's like, how do we get to be a part of this in a, that, that's a healthy dynamic? Um, that's tricky, and, especially when you're trying to convince people that this is your own history. Right. And I mean, there people were like, were very re- receptive. So it didn't take, um, I mean, certain, you know, we ran into some uh, people who said, like, I never even think about women's basketball or whatever. But other um, other people were super receptive and like there's ongoing talks about us going back and all these things. But at this, I mean, I'm just realizing that while I think that within specific context, it can feel so much like this idea of, um, I mean, not the idea of, but white privilege and how we... Uh, choose to respond to it or observe it and then and then respond accordingly. Whereas um, in Lithuania, it wasn't so much white privilege as it was privilege of us getting to travel there and research this this woman and, and not ha- there was not the same racial dynamics um, that that seemed to I ha- that I really, really wanted to be um, aware of when when I had been making work here. Mm. So well, there's I, oh, yeah, yeah. some of that insider and outsider dynamic too. Yes. Insider outsider. And also like passing through that, like we had a finite, I mean, I think that also not being able to speak the language, there were so many times when I want to like hold on to people and say like, we came here just to do this, like, trust us, please trust us. <laughs> but it's so, it's hard to get people to just, um, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, like these people—they're from Brazil and the United States. Like, how do how do we prove to them that like we're we're deeply invested? And you can't really do that unless you show up over and over and over again. Yeah. And yeah. I think I mean that's, that yeah. that 
that's how it kind of worked for me over here at um, what I will refer to as Torian Spears Courts, but it's currently at Frost Park. Um, Let's just stay ahead of the was, game and call it and, and yeah, call it at, his yeah. At, at Torian Spears Courts, that I mean, I I was well aware that some of the guys that I exchanged numbers with the night that I first put up nets were going to have the mentality of like, well, I'll believe it when I see it. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. Which I think is, um, is an important mentality. <laughs> I would feel the same way. Yeah. Uh, you know, if the, if our, if the tables were turned, I would be like, I, it's easy for you to say something. Um, and I think that, you know, the way that I got people to warm up, was that I just kept showing up. I just kept showing up before I even painted. I was just kept showing up and talk to people. I got, you know, I was told of, of, uh, the woman's name is Deborah Benders. Um, she's the resident council president. The moment that I said, Hey, I want to try to, you know, do this. Everybody said, Oh, you got to talk to Miss Didi. You got to talk to Miss Didi. And then somebody gave me her wrong email address at first. And then, you know, I just kept showing up and word had gotten to her that I was trying to talk to her before I ever actually (laughs) made. (laughs) Um, But the, you know, slowly, 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 did people get comfortable with me, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and and they had every right to take all of that time. And if they still did, I wouldn't even blame them. You know, it's like the the idea that, you know, that, truth is somewhere between like what is I want to say and I'm saying, and then actually what is going to take place, you know, and I try to be really mindful. I'm like, you know, when I introduced the film crew, I didn't work with them before. So I told the people that I, you know, had made connection. Bless you. Thank you. That was my first on air sneeze. (laughs) So I think, yeah, I might have to listen back, but (laughs) celebrate that one. (laughs) Sorry, keep going. It's a bucket. Yes, exactly. Uh, (laughs) Um, Just that, you know, like the the people, you know, that I still feel like I have something to prove. And there's like the, the mentality of if I'm. If I just be forthright, you know, that's what I was, I was starting to say about how, you know, the film crew, I didn't, I didn't have experience working with them. Um, and I just kept being honest. That's like, we'll see what happens. I don't know how many days we're going to be able to keep shooting. I don't know how it's going to all play out. Let's see everybody. If you're willing to put some energy towards it, that energy will be matched. And that's all that I can really promise at the moment. You know, I don't have a bunch of means to guarantee that we're going to make sure that this happens or, even the like political know-how I'm navigating this space mm-hmm. too. And I'm really, I'm really honest about it. Um, Cause I have no other reason to be, but it's like, you know, you can't posture up in these situations and try to like overcompensate that. Oh, I might, I might be unfamiliar. So let me all of a sudden try to act familiar. It's like, it's, it's much better to, to just be open and honest and, and, and play those cards. Like, Hey, we're going to do this together if you're willing. You know, I'm, I said this, I'm going to keep my word. That's the one thing that I can say that I'm going to do is I'll keep my word. And has there been any, um, I mean, as far as like the documentary goes, have, have people that, um, have been a part of the court painting and, and Newtorian and things like that, like, are they, have there, has there been any, like, who's this guy 
coming in to make a documentary about this place? Or has it has there been a lot of like positive reception to the filmmaker? I mean, it's 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 been positive. Um, they knew me at least a little bit before they got to know the filmmaker, and I think, you know, we made connections with some of the right people in the community that are like sort of the gatekeepers um, that have helped everybody else kind of warm up to us. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, I'm I'm really motivated. I I, I genuinely. Um, kind of see that now as like my home court and I kind of feel like the legs of my project are going to only be as strong as what happens there. Yeah. I think it's really important work and like all of the conversations that come out of it are also really important. So like the actions you're taking on a day-to-day basis are um, sort of infused with your, with your excitement about, the the work and and the story and like honoring Torian and also um yeah I just it's such a tricky well I guess it for me for me I was like the act of putting up the nets I'm really like I love the kind of the data that's associated I have a map and I take a spreadsheet and I have them all mapped out as to where they are and I, I was really hoping to you know get numbers this summer that we're going to make people scratch their heads. And I think that I did it a bit, but I think that I always saw it as a entry to, to creating community, to having dialogue, to a way of thinking. Um, and so this was an opportunity to kind of put that philosophy behind it into action. Mm-hmm. So I've ended up spending a lot of time there where I could have maybe been you know, putting up bigger numbers in, in terms of putting up the nets, but that's where it's like, I want to pull at this thread and see where we go. Um, because I do think that if, if there is a philosophy behind what I'm doing, this is an opportunity to actually put it into action. And, um, again, that's where, that's where I say that it's like, it's only going to be as, as valuable as what happens there. And, you know, who knows? Uh, we we got to save some things for the documentary, but there's um, there's some ongoing conversations, some things that took place this weekend that, um, you know, are sort of equal parts encouraging and discouraging, but um, there's certainly more work to be done. Um, and I'm going to stay on it. That much I know. Yeah. Really important and I think so valuable in sharing it because of the, it's such an example about going deep within a certain body of work and also following different sort of um, places it can take you that ultimately, of course, it is about basketball and the tournament is so amazing, but there's also this like sense of... Um, community building and uh, engagement and uh, investment that I think um, at the end of the day is like so much more valuable than, uh, you know, however many nets. Um, I think that I also for a while had been focused on like more is better, but now it's like so many of the nets that I got, I like can't um, 
really remember like that specific hoop, but like the hoops that I missed or, you know, like the, the places I wasn't able to get nets from or like there's some that just like the the experience at that particular court, aside from getting the net, was so important to me that uh, it's way more powerful than than the, the number of nets. I agree. And, you know, I I'm still interested in doing like a like sort of larger rehab projects um because so many of these courts need them i mean hearing you describe the one of the the map in baton rouge Mm -hmm. you know i can kind of like i can really visualize what that looks like because i've seen so many different ones you know but i do think that sort of what you're what you're talking about is like that connection and and the kind of being able to to create a sense of community and, and, and hoping to, you know, just be a conduit for helping to bring people together is sometimes more valuable than like what an entire, you know, I, I think that there's probably full court murals that were sponsored by, you know, budget companies that have done less for an area than, just bringing lines back to this court so that they could have a tournament where they would actually be able to properly referee it um, has done there, right? Yeah. You know, and and I I still think we should do both there. I still genuinely want to see a like a really beautiful redesign, but I know I've already sort of seen it in action that um, you know, and and I don't take credit for it. It was the people that that really there was a desire to rally under Torian's memory and I just sort of helped facilitate there being like, you know, some, you know, visualization of what that desire looks like. But, you know, I wasn't there every week where the tournament was happening. I certainly wasn't the one, you know, pulling out all the, the waters and the trophies and the folding tables and the, you know, score, like there's a lot of collective spirit that goes into creating what that environment looked and felt like. And that is so impactful and has this uh, like ripple effect into people's lives where you want to stick together. Um, And that's kind of goes back to what the game had done for me. Right. And I think we can talk about how you can't separate in America. You can't separate race and class from the game of basketball um, and the sort of iconography that goes along with it. Um, And my personal experience, you know, again, I can't separate those things. I think that being in gyms in Philadelphia where I was the only white guy and maybe my father who brought me there or whatever, um, you know, it gave me a level of I having to be comfortable in my own skin that I still apply with apply to all kinds of situations um that that is where it's like i i don't want to you know be disingenuous and separate race and from the game because it's there Uh, but my personal experience was that it did this for me that i now am comfortable in certain situations that i maybe wouldn't have been you know i think we discussed when earlier that you know, I'm not sure I would have ever been confident enough to call myself an artist had I not been a basketball player first. You know, I think that there's a certain, you know, you need almost uh, that like Kobe Bryant, you know, killer instinct to say, 
what I do is important enough to call myself an artist or what I do is interesting enough, whatever it might be. That's like almost a little screw loose thing um, that I think you need a level of confidence and you need to be sure of yourself. And I think that the game, you know, when treated appropriately, it gives that to people. Um, and I think it even just gives it to fans at times too. And that like, you know, it's such a powerful and beautifully designed game that, you know, your relationship to it becomes this, well, I have a place, right? It's like, I, I think about skateboarding a lot because I, um, was raised around it and my sort of my bus stop in Philadelphia was love park and, and the community that extended out from there. Um, shout out to Jimmy Gorecki, whose podcast I listened, I listened to him as a guest on a podcast today, but that's like this subculture <laughs> that wherever you go, you can connect to people. I was never good at skateboarding. I'm terrible at it actually, but I know that amongst that sort of that subculture, that there's all kind of doors that if you just knock at them, they'll open up for you. If that's truly what you like. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I hear you describe this situation of, of going to Lithuania with a friend and kind of like, like that is a door that you would have never traversed otherwise. And uh, that's an, an association with a game, you know, mm -hmm. like at the end of the day, it's a game. It's, it's, it's a pastime. It's a way to, to stay fit and stay busy or whatever it might be, but there's so much more underneath the surface if you go for it. Yes, I, I definitely agree. I, um, there's this interview that, uh, the elder Isaiah Thomas did. I think it was, I'm not sure when it was, but it was included in that, um, the OG. basketball love story. Uh, mm. documentary on ESPN last year. I think that's what it's called. Um, anyways, I know Isaiah Thomas has been a problematic figure as well. I want to acknowledge that in some ways, so I don't want to ro over-romanticize what I'm about to say. <laughs> but in this interview, he describes one of his basketball coaches telling him um, if he basically his basketball coach was spinning a basketball on his finger and he said to the players, like, if you let it, this ball will take you all over the world. And mm. I remember listening to that as, you know, Beautiful like last quote. year as like a 30 year old, like I was not, I'm not, you know, young and naive and being like, could it also take me all over the world? Like, I'm not going to play basketball, but what if I follow this game in a very you serious way? You can still way? let it. Yeah. Can I still, can it take me all over the world? And I think that, I think, I mean, ultimately anything can maybe take you all over the world if, if you... Um, choose to to engage and to let it, but uh, I think there's um, there's so many layers that to the to this game, and it really continues to open up um, not just literal opportunities, but it just like keeps opening itself up to me where I'm where there's just new um, new material, new lessons that I find I'm so grateful for. I'm so grateful for basketball to be honest well i i think it really creates that like kind of fellowship that i was describing i mean even you know my relationship with abdi uh, you know we worked together uh, in an art gallery in an amazing art gallery shout out to jack shaman um mm -hmm. and we connected 
I mean, one, he was, he was great to work with. Um, but two, we talked about ball, Yeah. you know, and, and when you're in that space where, you know, at times we would work, we had to work really, really hard. There's this, you know, recreation that happens even when you just conversate about the game and where it kind of, you know, automatically, no matter where you are in the, the hierarchy of an organization or the dynamics of a, a power dynamics of a certain whatever conversation that you might be having, you know, you could be talking to a police officer or someone in a position of authority about the game of basketball. And all of a sudden you're just two people talking about the game. Right. It's like, mm. just like what happened with Abdi and I, we, you know, no matter where we were and in, in what we were doing, you know, his opinion and my opinion about the game are on equal footing, you know, and I felt mm-hmm. that the way that the first time we, that we spoke, I even mentioned it to my partner that, you know, there's a lot of people that I throughout the years have talked to about both art and basketball. Um, and a lot of times people have like, you know, maybe more experience with one or the other. Um, but I really felt like you you know, we're equally passionate about both of them and, and knowledgeable about both of them. And it was like kind of really easy just, which is why I, I kind of encourage you to, to keep letting it take you around the world because maybe you might be kind of uniquely positioned to do so. And, you know, that's also, it just takes work. I, I appreciated that you, you know, reached out to me um, and invited me to come do this because I think, you know, gave me an opportunity to, to chat about it and meet you. And I think, you know, at some point, maybe here in Arizona or in Baton Rouge or something, maybe we yeah. connect and collaborate on something in the future. And it's never would have happened without, you know, you having already set up this, you know, this forum for, for artists and, and other people in, related to the game to talk about it. And, you know, there's there's something... There's something happening where artists, I think a lot of artists, even ones that maybe weren't previously, are recognizing um, the kind of overlaps that happen with the game. And I think it I give credit to just the game of basketball expanding so much, like the, the growth of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so dope to witness the, you know, the international players every year, those figures go up. You know, right. the popularity of the women's game, the the level of competition on all sides of the ball. And I like, it's like every day there's somebody who's like, maybe wasn't into it yesterday, but all of a sudden they watched one highlight or heard one great quote, like the one you just gave me. And then their, their interest is peaked. Yeah. There's like, yes, 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 definitely. And I don't know if you've been listening to Bill Simmons book of basketball uh, podcast at all? Um, it's like Not a special. A Sorry. Not. I haven't listened to the, that special yet. Oh, okay. So he had Steve Kerr on one episode, and um, in the beginning, Steve Kerr was. I think he was describing Steph or something like that, and he was just like, "Yeah, basketball is art, and if you don't think that, you're crazy," or something like that. I'm very much paraphrasing. And I was like, "Steve Kerr, do you want to come on the podcast? I mean, <laughs> this is too much." Like. I need you. I mean, it. there does feel like there's this momentum with the game, and I feel like I'm kind of um, uh, 
sort of like grabbing, trying to like grab onto that momentum and be a part of 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 what the game means, even when it's not something great, like this whole situation with China or things like that, where it's like, uh, you know, what is what role does the game play in these different places? It's still like, I want to be around for these questions. Um, and I mean, I think it's, it's, it's totally baked into the concept of your, of your podcast, you know, like that, those questions, and I'm not sure they were, they were appropriately answered by the league, but those questions about why the commissioner and the rule structure feels the need to dictate what players are doing with their bodies during, uh, observation of a national anthem, like that is still a valuable question. And it might ruffle some feathers to ask it. It seemed like you got you got somewhat of a decent response. It um, might just make my my inevitable uh, in person meeting with Adam Silver just like push it off a little further into the future. <laughs> but I I mean I hope I mean I think the whole goal is to like reach him through my artwork because I feel like any other way might be shortchanging the project. Um, yeah. So it's like how can I. Okay, so like I sent him the letter. There might be a crack response. in the armor in in Steve Kerr or even like a Greg Pop, you know, somebody that yeah might be more inclined. I hadn't heard that Steve Kerr quote, but maybe that's your next. I know. Letter. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah. There's just there is a lot of momentum, and and to be fair, like. When I see some things in baseball and football and not so much hockey because it really bothers me that I can't – I don't always know where the puck is. But when <laughs> I I see things in, like, tennis and, and other sports where I'm, like, I get sometimes similar feelings as I do in basketball of, like, wow, that, that, that decision, that intuition, that creative sort of impulse of that player um, and yeah. that ability is so um, enlivening. Uh, I think that I get it the most often from basketball, so that's why I think I, I always come back to it over and over again. But I really also want to shout out to the wide receivers and the uh, you know all the players that are like extending their bodies in crazy ways. That that is just um, is is so impressive. Yeah, it's cool to see the development of it. I mean, I I was such a fan at such a young age that. You know, I gravitate towards basketball by far the most. But you know, I'm a, I watch my Philadelphia Eagles. I I pay attention somewhat to tennis um, because you see, just like from when I would have started tuning in at some point in the you know early '90s when I kind of was old enough to like start to pay attention until now, like the sort of just technical improvements that have been made across the board are so mind-boggling. Yeah. Truly, it is. um, Yeah, I mean, I think that I was definitely uh, entranced by basketball at such a young age, but it's so, I feel like the game is so much more spread out now than it was before that it's like I can't believe I thought what I thought was so fascinating then because now it's like it just feels like there's all this space which then creates more movement um in a way that like it when it was so dominated by by centers uh there wasn't as much space it felt like there was so much getting sort of tangled up by the basket 
So, yeah, it's just amazing also how it evolves and your own perspective. You're like, whoa, this is so much... To me, it is more interesting than than maybe, you know, the first team that I fell in love with. I find myself that, like, some of the thoughts that I wasn't or, like, the sort of schools of thought or, or way that the game works that I was less interested by as a youngster are then the ones that I find to be the most intriguing now, right? Like I was not that interested in paying attention to the Spurs, you know, in those golden years. And Tim Duncan was totally boring, seemingly this, you know, ill fitted Mm -hmm. jeans character that you're like, what is this guy up to? Now I find him completely compelling. And I, at times, and maybe it's because I, as you know, a mid late thirties basketball player, have my baggage is restricted as to what I can <laughs> do on the court. So I should, you know, I, I go back and watch highlights of Arvita Sabonis or Tim Duncan, and you watch their footwork, and it was yeah. like I missed this whole thing that was happening because at first glance, at surface value, I thought it was boring because there was more exciting things happening in other areas of the game but then I like go straight back where you dive into it and you're like wow actually it was like that same kind of majestic movement it's all there it just looks a little different than what I was looking for before mm-hmm. Hakeem the dream is amazing yeah I mean his um he inspired a poem of mine that I wrote for my thesis in grad school about pivoting. Um, pivoting. Between, yeah, so it was a poem about him and Kellyanne Conway because, like, she's the master <laughs> liar and pivoter, and he's, like, the actual exquisite form of, like, humanity through pivoting. Um, so, yeah, anyways, I, I, I agree that there's there was things that I wasn't, you know, it's like you, you look, maybe at a certain level and you're not always seeing all the all the beautiful things that are that are a part of of that jump shot that just looked so easy yeah i mean i i like to think that my center joel Embiid has that kind of footwork Mm. naturally baked into his he, he I think he's the closest we would have come to uh, Hakeem in terms of that level of finesse at that position. Mm-hmm. But I might be biased, you know. Yeah, maybe we... we'll just wait like a few more years and and <laughs> and name that that. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, Joel Embiid. I've been I've been rough with you, but um, you know, I I appreciate uh, all that you're doing for the game, <laughs> and I think that also it's so interesting because my biases towards different teams change depending on who those teams are playing so there are certain teams that I might like hate the most and then it just it could end up by the end of the season that the Sixers end up playing someone that I'm like more annoyed by it just is it's always constantly evolving (laughs) um so I could end up rooting for the Sixers at some point it's just not what's happening right now I just want to put that out there yeah I mean I'm I am a homer so I'm like I I'm such you know, I've been rooting for the Sixers my entire life, so there's I can't unwire those things. But oftentimes when I watch other teams, my affiliation might change like mid-game if all of a sudden you're catching yeah. one thing happening. And it certainly happened like that throughout the playoffs that I just love the game so much that 
I root for every series to go to game seven. Yeah. <laughs> regardless. I yeah. I, 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 that is the, um, I, I haven't always felt that way recently in the finals because I wanted my team to just win. <laughs> um, I think that sometimes I, I have had a hard time not just being a basketball fan and just being a total fan for, for the team that I wanted to win and just like shut it down. But I have to say like the finals in 2018 weren't super riveting, whereas the finals in 2015 were riveting, yeah. even though I wasn't eating regularly. <laughs> like, I mean, just because there was so much like, huh, huh, is it going to happen? Who knows? You know, and just like grabbing onto strangers and bars and like being like, oh my God. And I just, that after a while, like you can't maintain, just, you know, as is natural, you can't maintain that kind of excitement every time. Um, and last year, yeah, I mean, it was, it was difficult because, uh, and I know that, I'm just gonna sound like an asshole, but I think if the Warriors had been held, if the Warriors had had their players, uh, that would have gone to at least. I mean that that series could have ended up differently. So it's just there's different feelings every time that happen. The mm -hmm. Cavs that Cavs win might not have happened had Bogut had been healthy. There's always a lot of yeah, you know, or if Draymond hadn't been suspended, true. and the Warriors might not have won in 2015 if Kyrie hadn't hurt his ankle and Kevin Love hadn't been out. So totally. yeah, you, you win some, you lose some. It's just, the I cannot deal with these is... Toronto trolls, you know, yeah. not get, not admitting what an impact it is to not have Kevin Durant playing. That's all I want to hear. The best, the best ability is availability. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> well, now I'm just getting, I'm getting emotional. I'm showing my anger. So I think we've, we've come full circle. <laughs> All of my vulnerability. I've sneezed. Everyone has seen me um, in every way. Well, so, shout out to your mom if she's still Yes, <laughs> mom, please. I know I told her, I was like, you can just mark as played as long as I get the download. Don't worry about actually listening. Um, she was my first... Um, she, I mean, for a while we were going strong there. Who knows uh, which episode has caused her to stop listening. But, um, yeah, if you're still out there, thanks so much for sticking with us. And thank you so much, Jeremy, for sharing all of this. Such good stuff. Well, really appreciate you having me on. And I yeah. hope that we, uh, we get to connect in the near future. Um. <laughs> okay, great. So have a wonderful night, and we will talk soon. Thank you to Abigail. Thank you. Care. Peace.